The Knowledgeable Provider Podcast is intended primarily to entertain, also to inform, but it is not a substitute for actual medical training and should not be used by anyone to diagnose or treat any medical condition in themselves or others. If you need medical advice, please make an appointment to see your own knowledgeable medical provider. The opinions expressed by me and anyone else who happens to appear on the podcast are solely those of the people expressing them and are not necessarily representative of any other entities. Other than the lunches at the office, I do not receive any sort of compensation from pharmaceutical or medical device companies, and I have no other relevant financial disclosures. Look, this is all for fun, okay? Don't sue me. All right, on with the show. So I want to talk about prostate cancer today, but before we jump into that, I had an interesting case to pass along from this past week. Now, my last episode was about iron, and I had a new patient come in who is a young, healthy guy, like early 40s, physically in good shape, you know, takes good care of himself, works out a lot, no real medical problems. The only thing he takes is supplemental testosterone that includes any sort of illicit substances, drugs, alcohol, anabolic steroids, anything like that. When I very first met him at his established visit, he told me that he had had some kind of physical at work and that his ferritin level was high. And in the absence of any symptoms or any other history, I kind of said, all right, well, it's probably no big deal. There's probably an explanation for it. We'll check it when we do your first physical. Because I'm thinking, okay, maybe he's taking something that he's not telling me about, or maybe he was sick the day they drew the blood, whatever. I wondered if testosterone therapy might have a direct effect on ferritin. And it does, but it seems like it should be the inverse. Testosterone stimulates the production of EPO and red blood cells, which uses up more iron. So the ferritin should actually drop for people who are taking testosterone. So we bring him back in for his first physical. Lo and behold, his ferritin was high. And I mean like over 900, with the high end of normal there being around 250. So this is like three, almost four times the upper limit of normal. So when I see that, of course, I'm expecting to see some abnormality with the rest of the iron studies or the CBC. But I see absolutely none. The rest of the iron studies are normal. The blood count's normal. The metabolic panel's normal. His testosterone is in the normal range. Like, everything is normal. Situations like these are when I feel fortunate that I am not practicing independently. These are the times when I walk across the hall to my collaborating physician's office and say, hey, what do you think about this? What should I do? He told me he doesn't recall ever seeing a ferritin level that high, and he thinks the patient should go to hematology for further evaluation. Just because it's weird, thinking about a differential diagnosis for what would cause high ferritin, he's not an alcohol abuser, he doesn't have any chronic diseases that we know of, he's not anemic. He's not taking in excessive iron, as far as we know. He doesn't have hyperthyroidism, according to his labs. There's no reason to suspect an inflammatory state. There's no other indication of malignancy. About the only thing left is hemochromatosis. And of course, with that, typically you would see some kind of abnormality on the CBC, or you would see some kind of symptoms. But there are actually several different types of hemochromatosis, and some of those do not necessarily come along with any sort of evidence of iron deposition in the tissues. So that's our leading hypothesis at this point, is he has some kind of genetic mutation that's causing hemochromatosis without any other common indications other than just the ferritin being high. So we're sending him over to our friendly neighborhood hematologist, and we're looking forward to seeing what they find out. So as soon as I learn something, I'll let you know. All right, back to the original subject of the show. Let's talk about prostate cancer. This is a very common issue. 
you're definitely going to encounter patients who have prostate cancer or had prostate cancer if you're working with older adults. If you look at the numbers on prostate cancer, it's pretty striking. According to the up-to-date article on screening for prostate cancer, worldwide it is the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in males, and in the United States it is the leading cause of cancer, accounting for 29% of all cancer diagnoses. To put that in terms of more absolute numbers, it was estimated for 2022 there would be about 270,000 cases diagnosed in the United States and 34,500 deaths. It's always interesting the difference between percentages or more abstract kind of statistical numbers that are a little bit harder to wrap your head around and absolute numbers. It's hard for me to imagine what, you know, 11% of the population looks like. But when I think about 34,000 dead people, that's a little bit easier for my brain to process. And with prostate cancer especially, that makes the screening situation quite a conundrum. Because on one hand, you read those big numbers about prostate cancer, how much of it there is, and how many people it kills. And we know that we have this great test, the PSA, prostate-specific antigen, that's very good at picking it up. But then on the other hand, you look at the screening recommendations, and they kind of say, meh. The USPSTF recommendation is in the process of being updated. But as it stands now, the recommendation from 2018 is to base the decision of whether or not to screen for prostate cancer on shared decision-making for men ages 55 to 69 and for age 70 and older to stop screening altogether. The rationale here is that many prostate cancers that are picked up with the PSA are cancers that would have never caused a problem and that would never have otherwise made themselves known. A lot of prostate cancer is very slow-growing, and overall the chances of one individual person being a person who is going to die from prostate cancer are low. As with any other test, there are risks of false positives. And once you take the next step in diagnosis, you're talking about things that are more expensive and more risky, either imaging or more lab tests or prostate biopsy, which is associated with some risk of infection particularly. And also from what I understand from talking to my patients is not an especially comfortable thing to go through. And once you make the decision to treat prostate cancer, now you're talking about radiation, chemotherapy, taking out the prostate, Obviously, those things are not without risks and potential harms down the road. It's very common for men who have had prostateectomies to be left with erectile dysfunction or urinary incontinence. So it's really a big decision about whether somebody's going to be screened and whether or not they're going to undergo treatment. And this is a really good example of a situation where we find ourselves sort of torn between the aggregate data, the statistics, the numbers, the recommendations from the professional societies, and by the way, the recommendations are all pretty similar between the different societies. There's not a lot of difference as far as I can tell, like there are with some other issues we've talked about before. So you have all that in part of your brain, but in the other part of your brain, you're faced with this one individual person sitting in front of you, and you have to figure out what the right answer is for that one person. And if I'm using my imagination, trying to put myself in that situation, just as a human, I have a prostate. And there's either cancer in it or there's not. Even though I know that's not truly a 50-50 situation, that's sort of how my brain phrases it. It is a binary situation, right? There either is or is not. And the only way to know if there is or is not is to check. And again, just speaking as a person here, not a medical provider, if there's cancer in my body, I would like to know about it. And I would like to get it out of there. And in my experience, that is where most people stand on this. We end up screening way more than we do not screen. And it seems like, again, just anecdotally, that most of the men who get diagnosed end up going through with some kind of treatment. 
We do have patients who are known to have prostate cancer who are just treating it with watchful waiting or surveillance. And we have men who we suspect have prostate cancer because their PSA is through the roof who are electing not to do anything further about it. We have many more who have gone through treatment and are left with some sort of lingering issue with urinary function or sexual function. So how many of those men might have been better off to just choose surveillance and not go through all that? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to ever really know for sure. So our default approach really is just to screen everybody. And we actually start earlier than 55. We usually start in the 40s unless somebody wants to opt out of that. And usually how that goes is the PSA comes back elevated. If it's super duper elevated and there's not an obvious reason why, we will generally send them to urology for further evaluation. If it's a little bit elevated, we'll keep an eye on it and trend it. And if it trends up over the course of a year, two years, three years, whatever, we will suggest that the person go see urology at that point to be evaluated. Or of course, if there are any symptoms involved, prostate cancer is much less likely to give you any sort of symptoms than something like BPH, benign prostatic hypertrophy, or acute prostatitis. But like anything else, if you do have symptoms associated with something, I think that generally makes us more prone to want to do something about it. And of course, who can forget the good old digital rectal exam? Even though that is no longer recommended as a routine thing to do as screening, the idea of that really persists in the zeitgeist. I think a lot of men are very nervous about having to have that done when they come in. We do not do that unless there is some reason that it makes sense, like they're having some kind of symptom and we want to decide is it their prostate or not, or the PSA is very high, but that maybe they don't want to go to urology. If we're sending them to urology anyway, we're generally not going to do the rectal exam. We're going to leave that to the urologist. And it's been that way for years, but still many men are uncomfortable with the idea of that. It's important to remember that with both the PSA and the digital rectal exam, it is very possible to miss prostate cancer. We have a couple of patients who had prostate cancer, yet their PSA never went up. And of course, it just makes sense that when you physically examine the prostate, you're not feeling the entire prostate, right? You're just feeling the side of it that is available to you through the rectum. So if the abnormality is not right there in that part of it, it makes sense that you may not feel it. I want to talk more about the PSA itself. This is an enzyme that's normally produced by the cells of the prostate gland. Its job is to make the seminal fluid more liquid or less viscous, and a little bit of it circulates in the bloodstream, and so that's what we're measuring, obviously, with the blood test. When you have cancer cells in the prostate, they actually make less PSA per cell than the normal prostate tissue. However, cancerous prostate tumors lack basal cells, so the basement membrane and the structure of the lumen is disrupted, and as a result of that, more of the PSA actually dumps out of the cell and gets put into the bloodstream. So that's why you have more PSA circulating in the blood when you have prostate cancer. And in general, it seems like there is a correlation between the level of PSA and the extent of the prostate cancer. So higher PSA equals worse news in general. Things that can affect the PSA that are not prostate cancer include several medications the most important probably being the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. That's the finasteride and dutasteride. Those medicines actually cause the PSA to go down over time. Other medications are NSAIDs and acetaminophen. Those both cause the PSA to go down. Statins can cause the PSA to go down. And thiazides can cause the PSA to go down. Other conditions that affect the PSA would be BPH. This actually is the most common explanation for an elevated PSA level, BPH. And then anything that physically affects the prostate, 
So if you have inflammation there or infection, and then any kind of physical pressure or trauma in the area. One thing that comes up frequently in the literature about this is riding a bicycle. If you've ever sat on one of those tiny little bicycle saddles for any period of time, you can understand why that might be an issue. And actually even ejaculating. There are some studies that show that up to about 48 to 72 hours after ejaculation, the PSA can be a little bit elevated. We definitely don't ask men to abstain from ejaculating before we check their PSA. But actually, recently we did have one PSA that came back elevated, and it was a big surprise. So we had the gentleman come back later and repeat it, and it was back to normal. And in hindsight, he realized that he had just ejaculated, I don't know, the day before, the night before, whatever, the test was drawn. So we figured that's probably what caused it. But just that is one thing you might not think about to keep in mind if you get a PSA elevation and can't explain it. Also keep in mind that direct stimulation of the prostate may actually be part of someone's sexual practice. So this may be a time when you want to really drill down on the sexual history, asking about what specifically people are doing. This also brings up the issue of whether physically checking the prostate will affect the lab or not. I've read some different opinions about this, but it just makes sense that if you stick your finger in there and smush the prostate and then check the blood level of PSA, that it would be theoretically possible for that to affect the lab. In my clinic, it's not really a huge inconvenience for them to go get the lab check before I do the exam. Our lab is like two steps away from our exam room and everything's drawn in-house. So typically I have the visit, talk with the patient, send them to the lab to get the PSA drawn and then bring them back in the room to do the rectal exam. But if you're in a situation where they have to go elsewhere to get the labs drawn, I could see where it would be much more inconvenient to do that. So based on what I've read, it's probably not critical that you do that, but just something to keep in mind if it is feasible to draw the blood before you do the exam. Okay, so let's say that we have made the decision to screen the patient for prostate cancer. The PSA has come back elevated, or it has trended upward over the course of however many months or years, and now we decide we want to do something about it. So what do we do? Well, in my case, we send them to urology, and then our part is pretty much done. We just follow along with whatever urology decides to do. So I'm not usually involved in making those further decisions about diagnosis and treatment, The reason I thought about doing this episode in the first place is I had a patient come in for a routine visit, and he was in this situation where the PSA has been trending up for a while, so he finally decided to go to urology, and the urologist recommended that he have a biopsy. This particular patient happens to be an RN, and a very smart and motivated one at that. So he read up on the situation and came back to the urologist and said, hey, wait a minute, why don't we do an MRI first, a prostate MRI? And apparently the urologist agreed to that, There was a whole thing about him being sent to an MRI facility that doesn't do that type of MRI because they don't have a strong enough magnet. And I guess that's why he was so angry about the whole situation, because when he was talking to me about it, he definitely seemed angry. He was pissed off about the whole thing. And he was kind of saying, why on earth would you put somebody through a biopsy like that if you can do the MRI first to see whether or not there is cancer there, but also to localize any tumor you find so that you know where to do the biopsy. And I really can't argue with that. You know, common sense says that if you can see something on imaging before you physically go after it, that makes more sense. If it's my prostate we're talking about, of course, I would much prefer to have an MRI on it before I have needles stuck into it. If you look at the literature on this, it seems like at this point it's pretty equivocal. The prostate MRIs are more common outside the United States, but are becoming more common within the United States. Just looking at the data, it seems like at this point it is kind of just dealer's choice, sort of up to the individual urologist. There's not a great reason to recommend one versus the other for the initial approach. 
This particular patient happens to have a friend who is a urologist at an academic medical center. And apparently when he asked his friend about it, the friend was like, no, standard of care is to do the MRI first. But really, it seems like it's still an individual decision that may not be the same everywhere. So anyway, that's what got me interested in talking about all this in the first place. Of course, again, when you're thinking about this decision, you have risks and benefits. Obviously, the MRI is not invasive. There's no radiation, etc. It is expensive, and there is a chance that it will not see tumors of certain types or sizes. And then with a biopsy, of course, that is an invasive procedure, a painful procedure. There are two approaches you can use for that. The most common is transrectal. So they stick an ultrasound probe into the rectum and then use that to guide placement of a needle. Typically, they're going to take biopsies from multiple areas. I think usually 10 to 12 samples. And I've never seen this done, but from what I was reading about it, it seems like that's not a collection of 12 needles that get punched in there at one time. It seems like it's one needle stick at a time, and then they take the tissue out, examine it, see what they got, and then do the next needle. And I think that's typically done in the office. So the patient's awake, and you can imagine why that might not be the most pleasant thing for somebody to go through. You can also imagine why there's more risk of infection since you're starting in the rectum. The other option for this is to use a perineal approach, so you're sticking the needle in from the outside. Less risk of infection there. As far as the pain situation, it's hard to imagine which one of those would be worse. So anyway, they do that under ultrasound guidance, or it could potentially be done under MRI guidance. So they're not just blindly sticking a needle in there. So what comes after that? We have our MRI done and or our biopsy done. It turns out we have some prostate cancer. So now the next step is to classify the cancer and figure out how severe it is, what stage it is. Initially, when the diagnosis is made, they will assign patients a clinical prognostic stage. That information is based on whatever they saw with the biopsy, the digital rectal exam, and then sometimes imaging studies. And then if the patient subsequently has a prostatectomy, they will be assigned a pathologic prognostic stage based on the histologic examination of the whole prostate. Either way, whether we're talking about clinical or pathologic staging, we're talking about tumor node met, TNM staging. So that's the extent of the primary tumor, whether or not lymph nodes are involved, and whether or not there's been distant metastasis. This is, of course, similar staging to a lot of other types of cancer. One thing that you'll hear about or read about a lot is the Gleason score. This is a score that's based on the histologic examination of the prostate tissue, specifically how well differentiated the cancer cells are. What you want is more differentiated. So the score goes from 1 to 5, with 1 being the most differentiated and 5 being the least differentiated. So the higher the number is there, the more likely you are to have cancer that is not going to stay confined to the prostate, that's going to end up having a worse outcome. They actually calculate the scores by adding together the two most prevalent patterns. Remember, they're going to be looking at a lot of different tissue, a lot of different samples. So for example, if they see mostly grade four and a little bit of grade three, they're going to actually add the four and the three together to come up with a Gleason score of seven. And then they use that total score to divide people up into risk groups. One thing that I've heard patients talk about frequently from the local urologist is called the 4K score. That's a test that looks at the concentration of the total PSA, free PSA, intact PSA, and something called colicrian 2, and uses those measures as an indicator of someone's likelihood of having more aggressive versus less aggressive cancer. This test falls into a group of tests that the up-to-date article on this puts in a group of like other things that they don't really suggest using. 
in addition to the 4K score that includes the Prostate Health Index, or PHI, the Select MDX, the PCA3, and the EPI. According to the authors here, there's really no consensus about whether or not these tests are useful. So I guess TBD on those. Again, something that probably depends on the preference of the individual urologist. What I gather from my local urologist is that they do use that 4K score as part of determining treatment modality. So you may see those sorts of things come into play just based on the preferences of the individual urologist you're working with. So that's where I'm going to stop this episode. Any further discussion of figuring out treatment modalities and different forms of chemo, radiation, surgery, etc. are way over my head and in our case are always left to the urologist and or the oncologist to figure out. So just to recap, for folks like me in primary care, consider screening your patients from the ages of 55 to 69 for prostate cancer with a PSA based on informed decision-making between you and the patient. Make sure you understand the potential risks, benefits, and harms associated with PSA testing as well as the subsequent diagnostic modalities that somebody may be put through I will put a link in the show notes to the USPSTF recommendation about prostate cancer screening. And of course, I'll list the up-to-date articles that I use as sources. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, shoot me an email at thekppod at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-K-P-P-O-D at gmail.com. If you're someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, perhaps you've noticed that you've never heard any ads on this podcast and you've never heard me ask for money. There are no ads just because the podcast is not big enough. The hosting platform that I'm currently using requires, I think, a thousand downloads per month before they'll start running ads on a podcast, and I'm nowhere near that number. And as far as asking for money, of course, this is just a hobby for me. I'm not trying to become a full-time podcaster here, and I really don't like it when other podcasts I listen to start hitting me up for money in every episode. There's actually always been a link to support the show. I figured if anybody really wanted to give me some money, they would find that on their own. And until recently, it just linked to my PayPal account. But I did go ahead recently and set up a Patreon just in case there's anyone out there who would like to help support the show. It doesn't cost me a great deal of money to make this, but it's not free. So if anyone would like to help me offset that cost, obviously that would be much appreciated. I don't have multiple tiers available for membership. At this point, I'm not planning on doing any bonus content or merchandise or any of that other stuff. So the only tier is $5 a month. If you want to help out with the cost and give me some money, I will take it. If you don't, Keep listening for free and don't worry about it. All right, that does it for this episode of Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like or subscribe or follow and leave a nice five-star review. And as always, stay safe, take care of yourself, and take care of your patients in that order.